Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of the past week and perhaps a little beyond. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Happy to be here with you today with Dr. Alan Chartok, who runs Northeast Public Radio. It runs itself, Rex, you know, all of the various component parts and some very determined people to keep it going. Dr. Chartok admitting to being useless. There we go. Thank you, sir. All right. You are so Um, welcome. <laughs> Rosemary Armeo is here, longtime investigative reporter and University of Albany professor. How are you, Rosemary? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. And welcome to the Media Project. I think for perhaps only the second time to Jen Smith, uh, reporter and community engagement editor at the Berkshire Eagle. Though so those of you who uh, listen to WAMC regularly have heard Jen before on the round table. How are you doing, Jen? I'm well, thank you, Rex, and thanks for having me back. What's the situation in your newsroom? Are you just uh, everybody stretched all over the place trying to do their jobs from home, or are you actually getting out and covering stories? Definitely getting out and covering stories, but some of us are working in a remote setting, but we're adaptable. That's what we're trained to do. People ask me how I'm doing, and I joked that I once had to file a story sitting on the edge of a bathtub in a a hotel crammed with eight other reporters. So um, it's how we do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is crazy. We were asked to come back into the Times Union newsroom to clear our desks so they could be disinfected entirely. So everybody's gone in and desks in the newsroom, a number of them have been blocked off to allow for social distancing. And when we finally returned to the newsroom, which is going to be done in stages perhaps as early as July, people are going to be stretched out, spread around the room. And I do think that this is changing how editors interact with reporters. Rosemary, you, in your career, you've been an editor a number of times, and imagine the stress of never seeing the reporters you're dealing with. You forget I worked in Eastern Europe, and my reporters were spread all over Europe and parts of Asia, and so it's it definitely is a different technique to do project management remotely. The simple walking by a desk and say, hey, how it's going, and you get into a conversation about the latest interview or the latest obstacle. Now you've got to compare what somebody tells you with what everybody else is telling you. It can be done, but of course it requires a whole different set of discipline. Absolutely. And Alan, you've got some people working out of the studios. David Gustine, our producer, is in the studio every morning to do morning edition, but a lot of your people are appearing from home also. 
There's no question about it. However, they do what they have to do. Some come in, some stay back. The newsroom at WAMC is a rather compact place, as you know, Rex. And so we've had to be very careful about social distancing in the newsroom and who can be there. Our wonderful Joe Donahue, for example, was sitting right next to Sarah LaDuke. Sarah LaDuke now operates mainly externally because the dangers are putting people in too confined a space, and we know that. Yeah. So this has been quite a challenge for newsrooms faced with an unprecedented crisis caused by the coronavirus, both an operational crisis and a coverage crisis because it's a hard and huge issue to cover. And then coming on top of that, the impact of the growing focus on inequity in society and on uh, racial issues that has come to the fore over the past month is putting a lot of interesting uh, conversation, a lot of pressure onto newsrooms. The latest part being a very interesting piece, a remarkable piece written by a young journalist named Wesley Lowry. He was a reporter for the Boston Globe who took off for CBS News after he was scolded by the Globe's editor last year for social media posts. Wesley Lowry has written an amazing op-ed piece in the New York Times talking about the danger of objective neutral in journalism, which has been an issue that we've talked about some here, but he links it to coverage that involves race. And he wrote this, the views and inclinations of whiteness are accepted as the objective neutral in the pursuit of a model of professed objectivity. First, this notion of objectivity. Rosemary, why don't you give it a shot? What's wrong with the idea of objectivity in well, newsrooms? Objectivity originally, you know, back in the 1940s, it was Walter Winchell who began with it. The idea was that there's always on every issue a multiplicity of views and that objective journalism presents all of those views. And then gradually over the decades, it changed and you would see two points of views. For example, abortion is either good or it's totally bad. And all of that nuance in between that well, it's wrong, but except in these circumstances, or it might be murder, I would never do to it, but other people, you know, I don't have the right to, all of that nuance disappears. And so the idea of objectivity in journalism became journalists can have no opinions. They can't express it. They can't admit to it having an opinion. And when they write, they have to balance one point of view with another. So it's the he said, she said kind of, we'll throw it all out for the readers and they decide what the truth is. And it's difficult to maintain because, A, reporters absolutely do have opinions, whether they're expressed out loud or not. And number two, you kind of get to that idea of the readers can't decide. They don't have all the information if you're just presenting it as a hodgepodge. So that's it briefly. I've always thought you were brilliant, Rosemary, but you certainly are. Because the whole idea of the question you ask, the question you ask may seem to be neutral, but it's not. The very choice in making certain information available or not. So the reporters are forever loading stories. I've always said that. I think Rex has taken some umbrage at it. But, I mean, how can it be avoided? Not just even the questions that starts before then. What stories are you going to cover versus what stories are you not going to cover? Exactly. There's your opinion and your ideas filter into that. Without no, the only umbrage, Alan, that I've taken is your insistence that we have to 
publish with every story. I think you want us to publish with every story what our political registration is or something. And my point not, is that not at all. if because yeah. I've been very clear in my newsroom that the number one objective of journalism, the code of ethics of the side of professional journalists, is seek the truth and report it as fully as possible. And the difficulty is that reporting as fully as possible doesn't mean that you report this side set and this side set. I've always said that, Alan. I don't know what you think that I've taken objection to. Well, because I tell you that when a news story is written, it is filled with choices. But that is reflective of the reporter, of the reporter's personality, of the boss that he or she reports to, and what their objectives are. We all agree about that, Alan. Well, that's good. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) We've never had a disagreement on that fact that I'm aware of. So, But Jen, I want you to go back to your early reporting days and think about how you were instructed or led by editors this notion of how you present stories, was objectivity a question? Was fairness the question? What What is it that propelled you into journalism in that regard? Sure. I mean, for me, you know, I, I come at it at a, a different angle. To answer the question of what got me into journalism was the need for more diverse views. And that doesn't just, it's not exclusive to race. Uh, We all have a number of lived experiences in society, whether it's a a social issue or a systemic issue. And those voices and that lived experience can actually be an asset. When you have reporters from diverse backgrounds, they might think to ask a question that another person might not because of their experience, whether it was poverty, whether it was abuse, whether it was addiction, uh, whether it is race. And so I think we have to look at it in that lens. And I think, you know, yes, we are always inherently taught to look at the facts, to look at the evidence and lay that out for our readers and for ourselves to have an understanding of the issue. But we also are trained to ask questions about it. And again, I think when it comes to producing content and, you know, looking at an assignment, it's it's one thing to get an assignment and to share things. And then if an editor has questions about why you chose to use this information or that information, it should also be a dialogue. It shouldn't just be a be-all, end-all, because we, we all have different experiences with how we learned to see things as well. And I think that is sort of what the issues are now, is that as our newsrooms become more diverse and As our audiences become more diverse and are living through experiences, some that never existed before, you know, we're all going to have a lot of different experiences and traumas that come out of this pandemic and of this, you know, current uprising. And so they all bear merit for discussion. You know, the great publisher, Robert Maynard, who ran the Oakland Tribune, has, and now there's a, an institute in his name, the Maynard Institute for Journalism, based in California. Bob Maynard talked about the five fault lines that journalism need to reflect. He talked about gender, geography, generation, class, and race. And he said newsrooms need to reflect all of those diverse elements. I think there have been a couple more that now the Maynard Institute focuses on, including not just gender identity, but also sexual orientation. But these are issues where, you know, it's difficult to have all of that diversity in a newsroom. Three years ago, after the Trump triumph, there was a lot of talk in newsrooms about how we don't have enough journalists who reflect conservative political viewpoints. And so editors were being scolded for that. And there was a lot of introspection. 
if I may on that, you know, you don't actually have to have someone in the newsroom that reflects or embodies that, but you do have to train people to ask questions and be able to question themselves and their own biases or own experiences that they bring to the table. That's what makes a good reporter and a good editor and a good newsroom. And it also, you know, we have to be mindful in this current age because the information is out there of where we used to turn for traditional sources. Let's stick with the pandemic, for example, and, you know, medical science and medical information. Historically, medical studies, research, and the impacts of things like treatments, vaccines, medications, affect people of different backgrounds differently. It affects women differently because we have different chemistries, different hormones. But a lot of studies where we're getting this information that's supposed to be good information from are inherently faulty. So we also owe it to our readers to be conscious of that when we're looking at things and um, explaining those nuances. There's one you've left out that I think is extremely important, and that is not always, but quite frequently, who owns the newspaper? So there may be a bit difference mm-hmm. between a Murdoch and a Salzburger. And quite frequently, I believe reporters are hired with some of that in mind, not always, but some of it, and that it's terribly important to understand that whoever owns the newspaper literally owns it and calls the tunes. The newspaper, the radio station, the TV network, of course, you're, you're just using newspaper, I think, as a shorthand for the media outlet. But it's, it's not just ownership, but it's leadership. And that's why the dearth of women in leadership positions, the dearth of black people in leadership positions has been so noteworthy in newsrooms. And I think it's a fair criticism that people who are in leadership and hiring positions, if they're not very, very carefully trained or if there's not oversight, will tend to hire people who reflect their own biases. That's certainly a fair observation. Over 50 years, Journalism has never done a good job recruiting minorities, recruiting other than educated, middle-class white people, by and large, into their newsrooms. They have tried. There have been efforts. There have been campaigns. It's never worked out. And one of the things I always thought was that when you did, in Baltimore, for example, they, they did great hiring. All these young people, MetPro, came from the Tribune companies, and young black and other minorities, but mostly black in Baltimore, came into the newsroom, and their work became homogenized, did not appear to be, to me, any different in language or in subject matter than what white reporters were turning in. And that's because we're all taught in the same schools. They were all from the same class, middle class. You're all taught in the same schools. And the black reporters learned to tamper their wonderful, colorful, and jargon-rich speech. They would come in and talk about a story. It would be fabulous. But when they wrote it, it would sound like it came from anybody in the newsroom. We've never gotten that flavor. And I do see a difference right now. That Tom Cotton editorial that ran in the New York Times and what's happening in the L.A. newsroom, that both were protested. Current practices, like I'm describing, are being protested by journalists who are saying, you are not representing my community or my experiences, and it has to change. And I have to say that in 50 years, I don't quite understand it. I I really know it's time for me to move on because I don't understand it, but I appreciate it, and I I applaud them for trying, and I I think that we are going to see a difference. You know, the new technology, the digital technology that we're using now to deliver content gives us the flexibility, I think, to present voices in a different form. 
we can have something beyond the sort of, <laughs> pardon the double entendre, the whitewashed content that has been the way we've presented things. Wesley Lowry's powerful op-ed piece in the New York Times that we opened this by talking about presents the notion that objectivity in journalism is focused on an imaginary white guy audience. And so I think, Rosemary, what you're saying is that this kind of defanging of powerful voices in journalism has been aimed at luring that broad audience that basically is that same middle class or upper middle class white audience that has been where we're going. And then we in newsroom management have always wondered, gosh, why isn't anybody in minority communities paying attention to our news organization? Why are we not adopted there? Well, we're not speaking the language or covering the stories that make well, that Well, and difference. I think that it's not about speaking the language. It's about trust and showing up. I think we see this a lot in journalism. It's endemic in often mainstream media and broadcast journalism, where we have this what we call parachute journalism factor, when we only cover communities or certain issues when something goes wrong versus when, you know, things are functioning or things are going well, you know, that does have to change because if we're not building trust, we're not building credibility, we're not building readership. It has you know, to come as from we the leaders from the excuse me, but it has to come from the leaders of the editors. Again, going back to my example in Baltimore, young reporters would come in and I would get stories from them about boat ramps being uh, mm. in bad shape in the local park. And I said, Is this something you're interested in? And the answer always was no. I thought you would be interested in it. That's the way all businesses work. You try to please your boss in order to get ahead and to be successful. And exactly. um, again, what I'm seeing now is the revolt. I think that's low. Yeah, it's changing. Mm -hmm. It's changing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another great initiative to look at and to see how it's not just about putting diverse people into a newsroom, but actually building a culture of understanding within leadership, you know, having the conversations. How are you mentoring these reporters? How are you listening to the story ideas that they bring to the table, what knowledge they have of their communities. You can look at um, what's happening with Lenfest Institute, which has invested really heavily on not only bringing reporters into newsrooms, but also mentoring and supporting them. The element of support has to be there. You know, you have to feel comfortable in the place that you work. You're not going to always agree with everyone, and there will be arguments, and you will have to uh, learn how to navigate that. But there should be an element of respect and understanding and understanding that it's traditionally been harder, understanding that it's traditionally been that you're taught to talk or act a certain way instead of saying, show me your authenticity, you know, get out there and understand your community. And it has to be everyone. You can't have on your staff white reporters who are afraid to be the only white person in a black neighborhood or a Hispanic neighborhood, or you can't be afraid to be the only man in the in a room of women. You can't be the only woman who's afraid to be in a, a room with men. You have to be able to teach yourself to be uncomfortable and to teach yourself to be accepting of that moment as a learning moment. What can you learn from being there and what can you share with your readers or your audiences? To Alan's point about the top being uh, where some of this comes from, Dan Frumkin, the uh, media critic for Salon, has made the uh, observation that this sort of change to journalism that is more reflective of broad communities will not happen until media executives' bonuses are tied 
to greater diversity. That may sound to people who aren't connected to the media industry like an outrageous idea, but if there doesn't come a signal from the top, and usually people on the business side see such signals through compensation, if it doesn't come from there, I don't think that there's going to be the kind of commitment to that that will lead to the widespread adoption in newsrooms. I think that's your, your point, Alan, right? Well, no, uh, you know, I painted with a rather broad brush there, Rex. You know, the idea of a Murdoch versus a Salzburger are two pretty outstanding examples. But there are a lot of people in the middle who are milk toasty, who don't really exert a lot of authority one way or the other. But it certainly does happen. I mean, I think a Times man is a Times man and a New York Post man is a New York Post man who always rings twice. <laughs> It was. Yeah, I knew you couldn't resist that one, right? I, could, I, could not <laughs> I do apologize. Hey. Rosemary, you were starting to say? Well, I, I, Jen's comment reminded me of uh, Bosnia, where I worked after the war in the 1990s, and we set up a newsroom in which you could not stay in your own community. So if you were Muslim, you had to be perfectly willing to talk to Croats and to Serbs. And we had many journalists who we wouldn't keep because they would not go into a community other than their own. And it's more than just going there to not be afraid. I mean, you have to be genuinely curious about people. You have to find mm -hmm. everyone interesting. And the more strange sometimes, the better. It's like, wow, this is really interesting. Tell me more. Everybody is flattered by interest in their community, in the good stories as well as the bad. But tackling the bad stories frequently gets at the issues and thoughts deeply into a community. So it takes a certain person to be a journalist. And I wonder if our recruiting practices are as bad as the ones of police that I've been knocking lately on the roundtable. Do we have the right kind of people in journalism? And, you know, the, the other thing about incentivizing change through bonuses, you know, I personally feel that it's a dangerous and slippery slope and it prevents, you know, an authentic willingness to change. It's just like, well, if I do this, then, you know, I get an extra five grand or an extra 10 grand instead of just saying like, I should do my job. I should learn how to do my job better as a leader. And it's not just about publishers and editors. It's about editorial boards and, and other people you're giving opportunities to find pathways for growth within in your newsroom. It's been studied that a lot of reporters get frustrated. Good reporters of diverse backgrounds get frustrated and leave outlets because there's no opportunity that's shown to them. And the people, the folks at the top at decision-making levels, you know, remain a homogenous group. That, I think, is a very powerful indictment and significant in that there have been supposed training programs, uh, but they uh, to, to try to encourage more diversity in leadership roles, and it seems never to happen. It is interesting that there have been pockets of places where it's happened. WNYC Radio in New York has a new editor-in-chief, Audrey Cooper, who just left her role as editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, my our sister newspaper, Hearst newspaper in California. And one of the reasons the leadership of WNYC Public Radio in New York City hired 
Audrey, is because of her success in making the newsroom in San Francisco significantly more diverse. She has been successful at that, and her opening memo sent last week to the staff at WNYC introducing herself remotely said, let me make this clear, this staff is not brown and black enough. So she has committed from the get-go to more diversity and hiring at that newsroom. I think it's harder, probably, at smaller newsrooms across the country, like mine in Albany, let's say, where we are not seen perhaps as a career be-all and end-all for folks the way, say, the New York Times could be. But it's an important goal, and it's kind of interesting, Jen, that you think of a $5,000 bonus. I'm talking about corporate executives for whom a $50,000 bonus might be considered mm-hmm. a nice little shot so <laughs> or more. And those or you are the could people hire I think a beginning it. reporter at that salary. <laughs> exactly. And then really and make the, the investment. You could, and that is a really good point. But if the leaders don't have stated from the CEO of the company that this is something that you need to take seriously, I just wonder if they're going to put in place the, the programs and hire the people who can make a difference and make that happen. It's very difficult. This is a conversation that we had back in the 70s, and it's still going on, still unresolved. I mean, we could get into the issues of why does anybody, white or black or brown, go into journalism anymore? There's no job security, and the pay is awful. So how do you address that? It goes way beyond bonuses. Why does anybody go into journalism when the field is hated by the general public and you're vilified and turned into the enemy of the people? And what about politicization in the newsroom where you can't uphold standards if you're worried about offending or firing or disciplining certain reporters or editors and not others? That has happened. And what about sourcing? You know, Gannett tried years ago to incentivize the diversification of sources by putting quotas on how many women and how many minorities had to be among the sources in a story. And we're still here having the same discussions and the same solutions 50 years later. Gannett's experiment was to require reporters to have diversity in the voices in their stories. And I remember reading a woman who was repeatedly called by Gannett reporters because she was the only Asian business owner in her community. And so she said, I am the newspaper's token Asian. Yeah, it's exhausting. And it's exhausting for that source. It's exhausting for that reporter. And I think, again, but if you're in the communities that you're covering, and you're, you're having conversations that don't have to do with stories. You're just out there having conversations. Being a good, That's what being a good reporter is. It's just being in the know. And yeah. then you find these other sources. It shouldn't be hard. And that's where, I, you know, maybe it's a blame on the, the journalism schools for not training reporters better to be curious, to not be afraid. No, reporting. it's not the journalism <laughs> schools. We have exercises all the time where you have to do exactly yeah. what you talked about. If you're a man, you go into a woman's group. If you're white, you go into mm-hmm. a black group. It happens mm-hmm. in newsrooms that are so downsized right now that you don't go spend any time in any community. If you're a school reporter, you're covering 16 different districts. How do you get out? I, that's what I what do every that? day. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And it's a lot of extra work. It is. And I think that's something, you know, it's a story that I myself as a reporter don't tell my peers and my friends and my family enough about is, 
you know, this is what we're up against. And, you know, when I'm saying support local journalism, that's what it means. WMC, they've got one reporter for the whole county. That's a lot. But we do it. We do it because we're curious. It goes back to caring about and being truly interested, not just for a job, not just to fill a story quota, but being genuinely interested in people. And I don't know that we have enough people in the field today who really can say that. Next week, we will pick up where that took off. How about that? We're at the end of our time, unfortunately, because that's a great conversation. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Jen Smith, not my cousin, but we Smiths are plentiful <laughs> because it's such a popular name. And I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. Thank you all for joining us this week on The Media Project. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks, for readers, and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press